Hello everyone and welcome to the first ever episode of this brand new podcast. The aim of this podcast is to give you, the listener, a little bit of an insight into people who work within the entertainment industry. Maybe you're one of those people, maybe you're not, it doesn't matter. This is just what goes on inside these artists' heads, whether it's musicians, actors, any kind of performers, singers, dancers, what goes on in their mind before a show, how it impacts their personal lives, their professional lives, and all the different things that are at play here, how it can impact their art as well. And what we're going to be doing over the course of this podcast is interviewing many of these artists, interviewing people in the industry and around this field, also a few scientists and people who have studied their fields at a university level and beyond and are researching and working within the fields of music and science. I'm very, very excited for this brand new show and to bring it to you on with the podcast. Okay, and welcome to this episode. <laughs> so I'm sat here with Katie Needley, and um, Kate, why don't you tell us what you do, what you've studied, and a little bit about what we could potentially be talking about today. Okay, hello everybody. My name is Katie Needley, um, and I studied a double degree in arts and science. So my majors were philosophy and French, and biochemistry, physiology, and neuroscience. What was the rest of the question? <laughs> um, potentially kind of what we could talk about today. I mean, okay, yeah. the aim of this podcast and this episode is going to be to talk a little bit about mental health, the effect it has on our daily lives, mm -hmm. where we think we can maybe take it in the future, where you think it is at the present moment. Um, and I just kind of want to see where the conversation takes us. Sure. Your opinion on it, given you've actually researched it. Yeah. And we'll take it from there. So I think I'm quite lucky that I have kind of different perspectives on the same topic because on the one hand biochemistry and physiology and neuroscience has allowed me to see the more physical element of how the brain works and you know electrophysiology and all that stuff is fascinating and I've actually done experiments on mice which is why I'm vegetarian wow okay. <laughs> yeah I've done a couple so I, I did um masters in neuroscience in France and the course was in French um and the first practical that I did over there was stereotaxic surgery. So I had never anesthetized an animal before, I had never touched a mouse before this, um, and they gave me a scalpel. Well, first of all, they said, take this needle and uh, inject this anesthetic into the mouse. And I was like, where and how? Okay. And they said, oh, you know, just kind of waving a finger around, just there on the lower portion of the mouse's abdomen. And I was like, okay. <laughs> That isn't ethical. Um, but yeah, we did that. And then it kind of died for a bit because we think perhaps it went, the anesthetic went straight into the liver. So I'm going to metabolize too fast. It's not good. It's not good at all. Uh, but it came back to life. The professor came around to our desk and just poked it back to life. I don't know if that's how you become a professor in neuroscience. <laughs> just poke mice back to life. Exactly. Might be a qualifying factor. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and then we had to like cut into its skull. So really? we, we cut the um, the flesh away and then drilled into its skull and then injected dye into a particular area of the brain that we wanted to then later image and then I had to suture it back up. So that was an intense first day. <laughs> that was day number one? Yeah. The, yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. 
baptism by fire, I guess. Exactly. It's, yeah. It was hard. <laughs> I can imagine that was pretty challenging as well. Yeah. So going back to what we were talking about, that's one side of science and the brain that I've seen. And then also mm. studying philosophy, you have obviously mountains and mountains and mountains of literature about, you know, Cartesian duality and physical versus non-physical and how do these things interact? And the answer is always, we don't know. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So it's pretty open-ended then that we just don't know and you're just theorising it and... Yeah, well, don't the philosophers won't say that. They'll say, oh, I'm sure that this is right because of, you know, Descartes said this back and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And then you just end up arguing about one particular word that was used and then the translation from the original French or the original German into mm. English and then what that could possibly have meant for this entire doctoral thesis or something. And that's when I realised philosophy wasn't for me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> At least you came to that conclusion then and yeah. you were able to pursue something that did interest you. Yes. Um, but what was your reason for actually changing over to, to biochemistry and neuroscience? Was it the intention to help people to do research or...? I just... Yes. So first of all, to help people, um, but also just because it's fascinating mm. and finding out, I really like finding out how things work and why things work a certain way. Okay. So biochemistry is fantastic for that. If you're not interested in mechanisms to any potential science student listening right now, do not study biochemistry <laughs> because that is all it is. It's highly, highly mechanistic. It's understanding that uh, a particular phosphorylation, so adding a, a phosphoryl group to a particular protein in a pathway then means that that protein changes shape and then it then can go and you know make sure that this other protein works a certain way and somehow through some amazing amazing evolutionary magic it all works and we become humans it's just mind-blowing so that's okay. why i like biochemistry okay and it was a similar thing for neuroscience it's the eternal question of are we just electricity firing backwards and forwards between various cells mm. or what is there more than that potentially okay yeah that's yeah these which are... is where the philosophy comes in <laughs> right okay. because i had these questions of you know oh maybe it would help it certainly helped when i was writing say philosophy essays and then people would philosoph when philosophers try and talk about science and they've never actually studied science before it's painful okay because they just do not understand what they're talking about and they'll take this one concept so um i remember doing a metaphysics course where some or no is a philosophy of religion course okay. and this one lady who wanted to argue for god said that um the problem of a non-physical god interacting with the phys with the physical earth wouldn't be a problem because of einstein's theory of relativity and just that doesn't make any sense whatsoever <laughs> none whatsoever <laughs> so it's, it's quite frustrating it's very frustrating okay yeah so at least you've had a chance to study both subjects and you can obviously be positive and the negative yes. between the two of them and how yeah. they can relate to each other. Exactly. And how some can kind of fill the gaps or at least lead you to think in a different way that then helps you answer some other questions. Okay. So I found that a lot of people who... It, it's hard because if you are scientifically inclined, then you follow the dogma. And we have dogma for a reason. You know, it's good that we perform experiments in a particular way that we do, but there are also problems within those experiments. Like there's hundreds of... No, thousands of millions of labs all over the world potentially all doing the exact same experiment right now focusing on the exact same subject and because they do not get a positive result their research will not be published 
So that leads to a huge publication bias. Okay. So then we're just throwing more and more money at the same topic, and then nobody's publishing these results. And for all we know, there are millions of scientists sitting around in their offices with a huge chunk of paper saying the exact same thing, and it's just going to be repeated and repeated and repeated. Okay. So this is why publication bias is a bad thing, and we need to publish negative results, but more on that later. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, so looking at mental health and how it's present in everyday life and how mm. people are affected, do you think that um, mental illness, do you think it's, it's still a taboo subject and something that people are afraid to talk about? Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the most common things that I've heard from people I know who are experiencing some kind of depressive illness um, or anxiety disorder or something like that is that they're just weak. And that just simply isn't true because it is a proper illness. That's It's a proper disorder. Mm. It is something that we can actually measure in some ways. And of course, none of those measurements are necessarily true at the moment because we're just still starting to try and find the links scientifically. And this is also where the philosophy comes in with, say, a treatment for depression is ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. Okay. Um, and what you do is you just fire electricity into the brain and hope that it rewires things and it's been very successful and it, it I saw your reaction there. Yeah. <laughs> you draw in breath and you think oh that's not nice and I think that has something to do with our conception of what it means to be human because I think we like to think that we're special we like to think that we have the something going on in our brain that's non-physical and makes us conscious we don't know what consciousness is right so okay, yeah that kind of relates back to that. And it's like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with that because actually maybe it's forcing me to confront the fact that we are just machines. That's a really um, interesting view to look at us and when you say think of us as machines. Yeah. And it's, that's very interesting. I think that's why we have this primal like, oh, I don't want to think about ECT. That That's obviously one part of it is that people think it's painful. Mm. Um I don't know, I've never undergone ECT, so I can't tell you whether it's painful or not. Right. not read much about it. I just know that it's an effective treatment for depression. Okay. So, yeah. But do you find that it's it's difficult, um, for instance, now in, in a workplace, in everyday life, for people to actually to pipe up and say, I can't come into work today, or this is affecting me because I'm, I'm suffering from this mental illness, or even people themselves be, being able to identify it? I think so. So obviously it also depends somewhat on the generation that you're from. So luckily our generation is slowly becoming more and more open mm. and more accepting of mental illness. Obviously we still have a way to go, um, but also our generation isn't really the one that's in control. <laughs> so there's a lot of, you know, our bosses who might not necessarily have the same background that we do and haven't had the same experiences and we're just told their entire lives, shut up, eat, eat some cement and harden up, essentially. <laughs> yeah. It's something that you'll hear in Australia fairly often is just eat, eat cement. <laughs> I've never heard of that one You'll be okay. Okay. Which speaks volumes for um, the older generation of Australians' perceptions of mental health. And that's why I think sometimes we need to um, look into perhaps the more evidence-based side of things. And that's where neuroscience comes in and helps us understand this a lot. Okay. And <clears throat> so I did a little bit of research because by no means am I an expert on this field whatsoever. I just wanted to do some quick research to kind of make sure that what I knew was correct and what might yeah. have been recently published. Okay. Um, and there's obviously none of this is 100% confirmed because it's science. It's really, really hard to 100% confirm something. Right. Um, but 
the most common hypotheses around what happens in particular types of depression. So this isn't even looking into anxiety, schizophrenia. There's a whole... Every disease is different, right? And Mm -hmm. depression isn't just one disease. It's a whole range of different diseases. So you have, like, treatment-resistant depression, um, manic depression, bipolar, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on. And so for a long time, we were just treating depression as though it was one disease. And that's just not true. So in different types of depressions, you have different presentations and different things going on inside the brain. Mm. Um, But what I have read recently is a lot of this is related to the hypothalamus. No, sorry, not hypothalamus, hippocampus. I always confuse that, which is not, which <laughs> Such is a not common good. mistake amongst everybody. <laughs> it's, you should never is it, confuse is it the, those two. the hippocampus, am I wrong in... Is that to do with the, the memory? Exactly. The yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So hippocampus is memory. Hypothalamus is like regulation of temperature and stuff. It's very different. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, you won't want to confuse those. Yeah, exactly. Also, <laughs> the hippocampus is one of the most widely studied areas in the brain so the fact that i just said hypothalamus is really embarrassing that's all um, good it's fine yes <laughs> anyway <laughs> it's interesting how you, you you call it a disease and i one thing like I, I do want to avoid with this podcast is people listening to it and thinking oh this is a rule of thumb treatment or if i if we're talking about um like you know it's a multitude of different yeah I, I don't know whether you use the word versions of depression. Yes. Uh, versions of a disease, and yeah. it's not a one-size-fits-all. Exactly. That's exactly, and that's what we're just coming to kind of deal with now in the scientific field and in, psych- in, and in psychiatry as well, mm. is that there are all different types of depression. It's It would be like saying, I have cancer. It's like, okay, but what, what kind? In, in, what, in what part of your body? is What, what stage is it? You right. know, it's like there's, that's, and that's an example I use quite often with my friends who have experienced depression is if they say oh, why can't I just snap out of it? I was like, if you, would you say that to a cancer patient? No. Mm. You do have a disease. And that's not to say that it's just in your genes and there's nothing you can do about it. Because that's not true. Because we do have treatments that do work. And yes, there's a hell of a long way to go and we do not know everything, but we are making progress. So it is a step in the right direction from what it was um, exactly 50 years ago. Yeah, so. I mean, just even looking back... You don't even have to look back in history. You can look right now at different parts of the world and say, in, in Ghana, mm-hmm. um, mental people who are mentally ill are just shackled and left in a dark room by themselves. So wow. just going from Australia to Ghana, you can see what a different approach we have. Mm. And it's the same thing in a lot of places in Africa, unfortunately. Um, but back onto the topic of the hippocampus, yes. not the <laughs> hypothalamus. Um what I wanted to talk about in terms of actually we can get better is to do with neuroplasticity. So do you, have you heard of neuroplasticity? No, no. Tell us what that is. So neuroplasticity is basically, have you heard the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Yes. That is incorrect scientifically. <laughs> oh, okay. So it becomes harder to teach old people new skills because actually their brains are becoming less... Um, open to change so it's the same thing with people of the new generation be like oh I don't like I don't like new things blah, 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 because it's just it's different right yeah so when you're young and so from the moment you're born until you die your brain is constantly changing and producing new neurons okay. at a, a ratio of about like 1.75% of new neurons are renewed every year I think so it's this constant turnover of neurons um, but that slows down as you age and neuroplasticity is also looking at how when a neuron develops, 
it kind of puts out little feelers at one okay. end and tries to expand out in different ways and make different contacts. And then the more contacts it makes and the more synapses that you have and then you can get communication between different neurons and then that changes how you think. Mm. And it changes the relationship between different parts of your brain, blah, blah, blah. So neuroplasticity is basically that saying the more plastic your brain is, the more it can change, essentially. Okay. So, and that slows down, unfortunately, as you age. And that's why, like, sometimes my mum will be complaining about, oh, this terrible music that's on the radio or something. I go, mum, it's just your midbrain. It's just your midbrain being too slow. Okay. <laughs> and not liking to change. That's it. Okay. Anyway, that's, that's my perspective as somebody who studied neuroscience. Mm. So, it's, it's quite a valid perspective as well, I think, that you can actually look at... And it's funny how you can identify that with your mum and be like, no, it's just your midbrain. Exactly. It's like <laughs> and I do that to myself sometimes as well. It's like, I'm probably less open to doing things now than I was a year ago. It's like, oh, it's my midbrain. My, my midbrain's slowing down. But it's funny how you can almost, obviously talking about uh, mental health and these different forms of depression and how we, we almost want to break out of it. But then you're almost trapping yourself in this little bubble once you start overthinking the different parts of your brain. And I can imagine with your knowledge, it can be kind of frustrated as well well i think it <laughs> you can hear floorboards creaking uh, it's riley's just moving through the room trying to be quiet it's all good <laughs> failing dismally um so yeah that's another thing is people um i think they think once they have depression then it's just so hard to change how you think right because mm. even somebody that doesn't that isn't experiencing this awful form of depression and feeling crap about themselves every day if you try and get them to change their perspective on something, that's really hard already. Yeah. Now put a mental disease on top of that. Because you can't just tell a depressed person, be happy. You can't just tell them, think positively and everything will be okay. Yeah. That's why we have cognitive behavioral therapy that we use to try and change how people who, experience, who are experiencing depression think, but in a more subtle and sophisticated way. Okay. And that basically comes back to what I was saying about the neuroplasticity is like our neurons are changing and our thoughts can change as well. <laughs> so um, something that happens quite often in depression is that you can have an early life trauma or be experiencing chronic stress or even acute stress and that can set off a depressive episode. And some research shows that perhaps that is because the inflammation that happens as a result of the stress in your body and various other things that you produce, so like um, stress hormones like cortisol, mm -hmm. those yep. actually can damage your body quite badly. And that actually leads to neuron death in some cases. So it leads to neuron death in your hippocampus. Oh, okay. So that's yeah. obviously... That's not what you want. But no. I mean, at the same time, remember what I was saying about neurons dying all the time and then being regenerated and that okay. kind of thing. So that's, that's okay. It's just that when you are experiencing this type of stress, it's happening too much. But, again, as I was saying, your neurons are still going to grow. Okay. And it's still going to be okay. And you can still keep changing your brain. Your brain does it by itself. Hey guys, it is time for me to talk to you about Power Living Yoga. If you head on down to the Adelaide studio in SA, you can get started today with a $49 intro pass. That's 30 days. That's it, you heard me. 30 days of unlimited yoga. Just $49. If you sign up today as a brand new student with this intro pass, if you practice three times a week, that's less than $4 a class. That's pretty good value, right? Value for money.
Power Living Yoga is a modern day physical and philosophical practice that focuses on developing a person's spiritual well-being as much as their physical and mental health. It embraces all traditions and teachings with respect. There's nothing mystical, unattainable or complex about this. So what are you waiting for guys? Go and sign up to Power Living Yoga in Adelaide. We've almost got used to the word like serotonin now and our serotonin levels. Yeah. Now I feel like a lot of people are, oh, no, got to get the serotonin up. And yeah. we've got to, we get told we need to exercise. Yeah. And kind of touching on what you said earlier about having like a positive outlook and trying to change our attitude. What would mm. you kind of think about, um, that, like, do you think serotonin is, is sort of overused now? And it's sort of more I think so. I think it's just a label that we give to it to make it easier to understand, right? Because it's a lot easier to just say, oh, it's just serotonin. If you go take that pill, it'll be better. Right. But it's just not the case. And there's a, quite a degree of heterogeneity between what different... What does that word mean? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there's quite a degree of difference and variability. Can I write um, that one down? That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, H-E-T. I'll get it after. <laughs> There's quite a, um, a variety, heterogeneity, of people who are depressed, um, their brains, when they go in for a brain scan. Okay. So even, like, so so many imaging studies have been done trying to find, like, what is this one particular area looking like between different people who are suffering from different types of depression? And there's just, there's too many differences. We don't know, which is why also it comes back to having the many different types of depression. Yeah. So it's not just serotonin, basically. And I have people, I have um, friends who are suffering from depression and they try and exercise and it does nothing for them. Right, okay. So I'm not saying don't exercise because there are plenty of other exercise, uh, <laughs> benefits for exercising, please. Yeah. Good cardiovascular health for one. Um, so, yeah, it's but, it's different for everybody. But like we, we kind of touched on it, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not just go to the doctors, take these pills... And if you go jogging every day, you're going to feel better. Yeah. I mean, that might help. And right. a lot of people do need their medication. I'm not saying go off your medication immediately. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Um, because some people really do need their meds. Mm. And a lot of people also don't want to take meds because then they're weak. So Do you, do you find that there's a certain, almost like a placebo effect, that if you, if you go and doctor says take these pills and it's going to make you better and they believe it but it, it can lift people out of their depression yeah definitely we know that the placebo effect is a real thing and it is incredible we don't really know how it works mm. i mean there have been studies done um with people addicted to drugs where if they were say an intravenous drug user so shooting up heroin or whatever yeah um they can just give somebody addicted to drugs a needle full of saline, so just salt and water, yeah. and inject it into them, and their brain will have the exact same response as though they had just been given heroin. It's it's really strange as well with a placebo because even when somebody tells you like this is a placebo, this yeah. isn't heroin, this is a saline solution, we still react to yeah, it. Yeah, it's still, amazing. Yeah, and we don't really know why. It's just hope. I don't know. I think hope has a lot to do with it, but also in terms of those extremely marginalized populations that then do become heroin addicts. Mm when they are able to just be around somebody who cares enough to inject them with something in a nice way, then that makes them feel better immediately just because they have that contact with somebody. Whereas before, maybe they were homeless, you know, they were kicked out of their home because they were being abused. They left something like that. 
Okay. So that is actually something that you have to control for quite often in psychiatric studies is we, we look for something called the effect size. So it's like seeing what size, what, what is the proportion? Um, I'm trying to, how do I explain this in like a, and so like mm. layman's terms, but yeah. gonna, everyone's going to understand, including myself. So it's <laughs> like if you give somebody a drug and it's the change that you expect, the size of the change that you expect to see in the outcome. So like if you're giving somebody a pill for blood pressure, say, mm -hmm. but you're only expecting that that medication is going to lower their blood pressure by, I don't know, five millimeters of mercury or whatever, whatever your unit is, then you have to control for that by having a larger sample size. To make sure that sorry, there's a lot of statistics I've just realized. It's fine. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. So then if you have a larger sample size, it means that the results that you have are more likely to be correct rather than just finding something that is incorrect as a, a fact that you don't have enough people. Does that make sense? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry, that was not a very good explanation at all. No, it's 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 not the easiest thing to explain in a world either. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a pretty good job. <laughs> but like talking about um like you mentioned kind of a brain and like the teaching me old dog new tricks and that how much do you think the kind of goes back to the old question of nature versus nurture mm. and how much of mental health do you think is it can be genetic or is is a response to our immediate environment well i'm going to give the classic response and say both it's both nature <laughs> and nurture because I, really it just is i mean looking at um, genetics, so I found a paper recently that was the first paper to actually have any candidate genes for this kind of depressive disorder because finding finding a particular gene for a disease is difficult in most cases because very few diseases are the result of just one gene mutation. Okay. Most diseases are the result of many different genes functioning in a different way. Mm -hmm. And with a, a disease as complex and heterogeneous as um, depression, that's a whole bunch of different genes that are acting in different ways, very in a very complex manner. Um, so we've only recently kind of uncovered two potential genes that look like they actually are involved. Uh, but then we also know, going back to... Um, nurture mm -hmm. that traumatic life experiences early on in life is a huge predictor yeah. for depression and anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, things like that. Okay, so these and, early memories are really going to stay with you exactly. and can just branch out into ways of it. Yeah, and sometimes you won't even realize it could be something that happened to you in your childhood that you completely repressed, and then you'll be walking down the street one day and see something that triggers a memory, and then all of a sudden it can hit you. I'm just I think of that show Dexter when he's sort of like in the in, in the, the, the container right yeah, and he's it was yeah. it like his mum gets gets murdered and yeah, he's, yeah, he's soaked yeah. in blood exactly and then it starts getting later in life okay yeah. cool so we're all kind of Dexters we just haven't quite uncovered it yet less Hollywood okay but yes <laughs> <laughs> you know and some people live with their trauma far more personally and yeah. in the present than other people but on, on the topic of nature and nurture definitely both are important and because mm. I think the the most recent statistic I read is that 31% of depression is inherited because they did twin studies. Oh, okay. But then they found that 76% of it was environment, also doing twin studies. Okay. Don't ask me too much That's... about those designs because I don't, I don't remember all the designs of the experiments for that, but that is what they found. So that tells you that there is a genetic component and that there is an environmental component. Okay. So and it's definitely a mix of 
other two then it's yeah. not just I, I guess it's kind of difficult then if you if you are going through depression and it's something that it's just be it's beyond your control it was something that you could be born with genetically and then having that early childhood trauma yeah and it's and just be really unlucky yeah yeah but it's just knowing where to go forward with it exactly and how again like how we can treat it again there's a multitude of different yeah. types of depression and we keep coming back to this word disease as well yes which i think is such a an interesting approach as opposed to shackled in a dark room yeah like in other exactly. parts of the world like you mentioned yeah it is a proper disease and as we should treat it as such and we should afford it the sensitivity and the respect that we give to other people who are suffering from diseases okay. it doesn't make you weak to be having this i mean you wouldn't walk up to somebody on the street with i don't know tourettes or something and say you're weak because one <laughs> you'd be sworn at and then you know, it's just <laughs> not something that you should do. <laughs> no, right. It's it's just having it's it's understanding that this person has um that they have a disease. Yeah. It's you know, it, you just need to help these people through love and compassion. Yeah. And I, I um, you hear a bunch of different statistics as well, but it's like one in four people, maybe less, one in two, I can't remember, like it seems to change, has depression yeah. or knows someone with depression. Yeah. And it seems like it's such a part of everyday modern life now. Yep. And we are slowly starting to acknowledge it yeah, and have this awareness to it. And it just makes you wonder what happened in the decades and the centuries before us. Do you think people were as depressed and they just couldn't talk about it? Was it called something different? Was it just a different cultural norm? Mm. Maybe the French were always depressed and they just called that life. And that's why they have so many philosophers. Maybe. <laughs> that's one way to look at it. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. When you, when you look, at, look at it back through the centuries and through time. Yeah. But what I, I, I do want to look at is if people are listening to this podcast and they're going through that traumatic time or they know someone going through a traumatic time in, in terms of um, maybe their, their living situation or whatever it is that could be causing this depression or this mental uh, health issue. Whatever disease. It is. This, yeah, okay. This disease. Yeah, you can say the word disease. <laughs> it, it's, it's really funny. Like Even on this subject, I, I feel like there's some words that you would inadvertently say, but but are going to um, offend people. Yeah. Are there, are there words you, you think should be avoided? Weak should be avoided, definitely. Yeah. Don't call yourself pathetic. Don't tell yourself you should be better than this because you wouldn't tell somebody with cancer to be better than this. So it's very much a mindset for, for ourselves, then. If we are suffering from this disease, we have to have that positive outlook. Yes, I think you should know that, first of all, you're not alone. All those statistics you were saying about, like, one in four people is going to experience or develop a disease a mental illness at some point in the future mm. everybody that i know if not them their immediate family member has some kind of depression or anxiety so you're not alone so do you do you think that because even now in in society it's not fully accepted globally do you think that um Going more towards the, the artists now and creative sites, or the, the creatives, people yeah. deem them as, you know, the actors, the singers, the dancers, yeah. musicians, yeah. whatever. Do you think that, um, that depression and this disease is quite common amongst those kinds of people, amongst creatives? I think so. I mean, well, that's certainly the stereotype that we are all you know, shoved down our throats, right? The, the starving artist, the tortured soul that writes you know, Nick Cave, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're... <laughs> The, the beacon of what it is to be an artist kind of thing. Yeah. And perhaps, yes, I mean, I haven't looked at the stats myself, but it's certainly the stereotype that we are exposed to. Um, and perhaps it could be a... Is it, is it correlation or causation? 
you know, because do you become depressed and then turn to music or because that's a stupid question actually they're the same thing in this instance never mind no no no, no, no. <laughs> because if you if you are depressed and then you turn to music as kind of a form of solace or because you enjoy music you are naturally more sensitive because we you know people who are very emotive and love music they're, they're quite sensitive to the things around them generally mm-hmm. so then they can become depressed because a lot of people that I know who develop depression are the people who are the most sensitive and the most empathic. They're the ones who can kind of look around in a room and perceive that that person is in pain or this other person is going through something terrible. Mm. So all of my kindest and gentlest friends are the ones who are suffering the most, essentially, because I think that they are more aware and more capable of looking outside of themselves and really feeling physically that other person's pain which is also why I think a lot of people in our generation are very depressed because we have a 24-7 stream of news Mm. assaulting us (laughs) saying look what's happening in Saudi Arabia look what's happening in Yemen and in Syria and in Iraq and look at the Kurds and how you know this number of refugees is still on Manus Island and how they're committing suicide or trying to commit suicide every day yeah shame on you Australian government by the way that by the way that is so covered up and hidden up by the rest of the world like that um coming from england that i can't even recall that being on our headlines no like on, on, the, on the on the like you said 24 summer news or in the papers or anything like that's so i didn't discover that until i came here i'm ashamed to say it's relatively covered up in australia as well i would say i mean look at your average sunrise show for i would say probably 60 percent of your average sunrise show is advertising unsurprisingly <laughs> And the other 40% is kind of broken up between diet fads and look what this, look what Donald Trump did. Um, and then look at, I don't know, this green vegetable and all those superfoods, blah, 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 mm. and all that crap. Um, <laughs> and no, it's not something that is brought to light because it's too hard to think about. Okay. It's, <laughs> I think it's interesting that, that certain stuff is covered up and how you say we can look at this this world and, and see it as, as being tortured and we look at, oh, you know, you have all this empathy for people and it is often sensitive people who see that. Mm. But in terms of um, happiness, mm. how much of it is our... I know you and I kind of briefly spoke about this mm. like a couple of weeks ago. How much of our happiness is... Like, do you think it's down to a positive attitude um, that we can have in a positive outlook on the world or just something we're simply born with and we can't oh, really man. change? Good question. I really don't know. <laughs> I, really, <laughs> I really don't know. That's why we're investing so much research into resilience right now because there are examples of people who come from terrible homes who've experienced all kinds of trauma and somehow they still remain positive and they still keep going and become successful depending on how you define success. Yeah. Um, and like, how does that happen <laughs> when... relatively speaking you could have somebody who lives in a nice home and have supportive family and then they still develop depression and then it's those people that think that they're being weak and should just toughen up so it's like I said it's nature and nurture it's genetic and environmental and some people are just really naturally naturally happy people some people have worked incredibly hard to become I don't know rational positivists they've (laughs) They try and always look on the bright side of life from a rational perspective, that kind of thing, um, which is really hard to do. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And some people can train themselves really well to be like that. And then there are some people whose brains just aren't 
functioning that way. And it's up to that person and their individual disease profile and how they think to try and find a way out of that. So starting to close down a little bit now, when when we're talking about all this, this money and this research that's going into this and investigating this, in the future, what difference do you think this will actually make to the average person in the street, like you know, to you and me? How do you think this can affect us and like, you know, the, the people around us? Um. All I can say is that there are a lot of scientists working incredibly hard right now to try and understand what's going on. Um, people who care so much, doctors and nurses, everybody in the healthcare system, they all want to try and make a difference. You don't go into, actually some, some people do go into medicine just for the money, but we'll put that aside. It's <laughs> <laughs> a nervous topic entirely. <laughs> A lot of people go into those kinds of fields because they really want to do try and help people. And I do believe that we will, you know, the earth doesn't catch on fire and freeze at the same time and we kill ourselves with climate change. If we can somehow keep our society functioning at a relatively good level, yeah. <laughs> you could call our society that now, you know, um, if we can keep doing this, then science will progress. And I think that we will become a more patient and a more tolerant and a more accepting society. And I think that science is a field that is constantly evolving at breakneck speed. Um, so I think we will find answers in the future for sure. And I think that people out there who are suffering right now, it's so hard. Yeah, It's so, so hard. And it seems like there is never going to be a way out. But then there, there is. Okay. It's but just keep going, keep trying. Keep trying is one of the worst things I think you can say. <laughs> because it's like, yeah, man, I know. <laughs> that's why I'm still here, you know. But it, it, it's being open as well. And, and that's why like, I wanted to talk to you about this subject. And like, this, this acceptance, like, it's okay to say, hey, I'm suffering right now. Yeah. I, like, I need help. I want to talk about it. This is why I can't come into work. This is why I'm not the most talkative person in the room right now. Exactly. And it's okay to be that person, I think. Yeah. You know, 100%. Any advice for anybody who is maybe keeping these kind of, this, uh, maybe not the word anxiety is going to be the best word to use in this instance, but keeping these emotions. And of, if they're ashamed. Yeah, anybody anything. keeping it in now or maybe it's not speaking to someone. Any words of advice? or? or well, the first thing I think would just to know that you're not alone, because I think a lot of us can feel alone when we're experiencing this, but you're not. Yeah. everybody at some point in their life is going to go through this and if you are if you can be one day strong enough and ready enough and open enough to go and talk to somebody about it then that is the best thing you will ever do that's great yeah cool thank you so much for coming along thank really you really appreciate it me. thank you <laughs> big thank you to kate there Kate providing us a great insight into this topic on the first ever episode of the podcast. She's helped us understand a little more about this subject and all we can do now is take it further, help us see what's going on inside the minds of these artists. We're going to speak to a lot more artists. We've got some great people coming up for this podcast. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to say their names yet, but stay tuned for more. Thanks so much, guys. See you next week.
Control. 